Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennett and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 14 for 2022. This is only the second time I've had an Arupian on the podcast, and I'm so pleased it's Patrick to be joining me today. Patrick Gore is an associate principal based in Arup's Melbourne office. He's a senior finance cost and project assurance specialist on major transformational commercial projects. Patrick's focus on private and public infrastructure finance, investor and commercial negotiation within the energy market. Specialising in commercial risk, financial analysis, strategy and modelling, Patrick leads teams responsible for designing, delivering and implementing major strategic and commercial projects across all sectors. He has worked on programs and projects throughout Australia, the UK and Europe. One of his key focus areas is on energy and hydrogen and the transition to net zero energy production. And Patrick's actually Arab's global hydrogen leader. Patrick's a chartered accountant by profession. He holds a Bachelor of Business, Economics, Accounting and International Trade from Swinburne University of Technology and has held senior strategic roles in, our, in Australia and Europe and within the Victorian Government, International Development Law Association and EDF Energy. What a bio. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. How are you? Great. Thanks, Nicole. Very excited to be here. That's awesome. And is it chilly in Melbourne today? Yeah, look, it's raining. It's raining heavily, but that's to be expected in Melbourne in June. So, you know, we'd love to be up on the Gold Coast with you, enjoying some of the sunshine, though. Absolutely. Look, I have uh, enjoyed working with you in Arab, uh, and you are one of those people that is is uh, a bit of a genius, <laughs> but also just has some <laughs> of the, the... You are, you are, and you have some of the most exciting projects and things going on. And you know, when when the latest news uh, sort of started coming out around energy, you know, and, and, and the energy crisis that we're in and the East Coast is now, you know, apparently at risk of blackout due to peak demand and, and all of these things, I initially thought, you know, I, I really need to get Patrick on the podcast because he'll, he'll be able to explain all of this to us. Uh, and, and, you know, your focus on that energy transition and, and, and the opportunities with hydrogen and, and, you know, what that can do for communities, I think, would be really great and something I haven't covered at all on the podcast. So I'm hoping we can uh, go through that today and, and see what we can tell our, our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. It's an exciting time. And I think, you know, you and I were speaking about this, that we've kind of timed it perfectly in the sense that getting an energy person on your podcast in the middle of an energy crisis. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, probably to to start off, energy's a, energy at the moment in Australia is in flux and has been for a long time. Um, but what we're experiencing today is actually it's been building for a long time. So we've had a market operator and a market kind of regulator that's had 
that's allowed free reign almost or, or, or allowing the, the market to operate very freely for nearly a quarter of a century. And what's happened in the last couple of days is the unprecedented move where the market operator, AEMO, has intervened directly in the marketplace and ordered generators to come online and taking control of what electricity is um, being produced where and when. Now, to most people, we turn the lights on at home and the lights come on and we don't really experience blackouts and brownouts and that sort of stuff. I mean, there's been the old one. Victoria had one. South Australia had, obviously, the 2016 um, total blackout. Um, and we've had a few rolling brownouts in um, really hot summers. I'm sure you probably remember some of those where, you know, you'll, you might hear the energy minister say, right, everybody in this part of the, you know, the country is going to have um, a brownout between, you know, 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. or something like that. Or can you all please turn your air conditioners off or whatever it is, right? And that's kind of the extent of intervention we have in our market. Um, so Australia's got two, uh, kind of three markets, but two main ones. So one is what we call the national electricity market, which runs across the eastern seaboard in South Australia and Tasmania. And then we've got the Swiss, which is the Southwestern Interconnector um, Service, which is in South southwestern um, Western Australia. And there's a NUIS as well, which is another interconnector in the northwestern part. But in terms of the markets, we've got um, the NEM is what we're talking about today. And that's where all of the problems have been. Because if you pick up the, the Western Australian papers from yesterday, they're talking about an oversupply of electricity in their market in the oh, Swiss, wow. in the Swiss, sorry, um, which is, and, and talking about how they're going to um, decommission Collie Power Station, which is a coal-fired power station in WA, early, so in 2027, which is obviously the exact opposite of what we're experiencing over on the East Coast. So yeah. what I think, you know, what are we actually experiencing, though? Um, it, it's, this, it's this perfect storm of coal-fired, gener ageing coal-fired generators um, having what we call outages, and an outage is when they go offline, and you have both planned and unplanned outages. And that's a really important thing to understand because a planned outage is when we have to do maintenance to the to the um, to the plant, and that's scheduled in. And so the plant will go offline. They'll do the maintenance. Usually, it's a very stressful kind of forty-eight out, forty-eight to seventy-two hours, and they'll do the maintenance and they'll come in and they'll they'll put the plant back online. An unplanned outage is when something goes wrong. And that's when the, the electricity generation plant goes offline and they need to scramble. They've got to get the parts into fix They've got to figure out what's gone wrong. They've got to get the parts in to fix it and they've got to get it back online. Because every minute the generator is offline, the owner is losing money. Yeah. Um, so there's a, you know, there's there's kind of, we've had this, this storm of our aging coal-fired power stations have gone out of action. Um, which is one reason we've had an unprecedented spike in the cost of coal and gas, which is kind of another reason, which means that our generators are paying more and they're struggling to, to make, the, make, make their money back on selling the electricity. Now, that kind of protects the coal-fired, the brown coal-fired generators in um, Victoria because nobody wants to buy brown coal anywhere in the world because it's really dirty stuff um, and there's not a lot of global demand for it so they're kind of protected so we're not seeing that happen so much but we are seeing it in Queensland and we are seeing it in New South Wales where there's been gigawatts of um, electricity pulled out of the marketplace and what happens is the the market operator 
which is AEMU, they have what's called a lack of reserve notice, and that's an LOR. And you might have seen or heard of that in the paper. And there are kind of three stages for an LOR. And basically what happens is the, the market operator forecasts um, the difference between the amount of electricity they have available in the marketplace versus the amount of electricity that they need in order to um, maintain the system and the reliability. And they have what's called a, a buffer. And it's like, think of it um, like redundancy. It's like having a, having an extra battery charged up or an extra fuel tank on your car when you go camping. It's that, that yeah. they, they always have a buffer in the system of available electricity. And yeah. when that buffer gets a little bit low, um, it's when the reserve levels are lower than the largest um, supply of resources in the, in the state. Right. And so what happens is that's called an LOR1. So that happens um, essentially when there's a, a little bit of a lack of electricity in the marketplace or something might have gone offline or, you know, a large customer um, has to, you know, a large um, power station unexpectedly goes offline and there's, you know, there's a drop in, a drop in um, reserve. Mm. So, and what will happen then is there's the market operator can then direct people to kind of reduce their electricity. Now, this goes up to LOR2 and then LOR3. And LOR3 is where we've seen that's the, that's kind of the, the bit that starts causing a little bit of um, sleepless nights for a few people, let's say. So that's is where... Is that where we are now? For Queensland and um, New South Wales, there were LOR3 events forecast at particular times of the day. Okay. So earlier in the week, you would have heard... Um, Queensland has a forecast deficit of, you know, 1.4 gigawatts or 1,400 megawatts. That's the forecast deficit um, of electricity, and that they need to have. They needed to start telling customers to turn off, and they and AMO intervened did that. Um, and LOR three is basically when there's an actual deficit between the supply and the demand of electricity, mm. and this means that there's um, no reserve supplies available at all. And that what we call load shedding has to occur, occur, which is where you basically have to, you know, start shutting shutting people off. Um, yeah. And that's a that's a real that's a last resort. And AEMO forecasts these events. Um, and what what we saw in the last week was they were forecasting quite a lot of these events happen across Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria. Now there are loads of reasons for this. You know, one we spoke about just before about the the coal and the gas going up. We spoke about the coal-fired power stations coming offline, but AEMO had also intervened to set a maximum cap on the price of electricity that generators could earn in the marketplace in the settlements of the marketplace. And what the cap they set was three hundred dollars a megawatt hour. And what that meant was some of these some of these generators were not going to be able to make their money back. Yeah. And so they have decided not to bid their electricity into the marketplace. Mm. Now, rightly or wrongly, I mean, they're, you know, they're making that decision from a commercial perspective, but there is actually a mechanism under the market rules that, that the market commission allows for a reimbursement of costs lost as a due, uh, you know, from the, um, from not being able to recover your costs from the price of electricity being too low. And, and, you know, if the market operators intervene. So what what we saw was a little bit of gaming happen in the marketplace mm -hmm. where 
generators started pulling their electricity out of the out of the bidding, which means that the that created these events. So AEMA was all of a sudden saying, right, I don't have this much electricity to bid into to bid in the marketplace anymore. Where am I going to get it from? And then that's where we saw the unprecedented move yesterday, where AEMO stepped in and took control. Wow. And this is this is a this is a huge thing for our market because you know we we wouldn't notice it ordinarily because the light, like I said, it just switches on or it switches off, right? Yeah. And it, you know that's that's how we know we plug our phones in or we plug our computer in or we turn the TV on or we turn the aircon on and it just works, right? Mm-hmm. And so the market operators stepped in to make sure that we have that reliable supply of electricity and they are ordering generators to turn on and off at certain times in order to meet the demand for electricity even if they don't make money so what, what happens with that 300 you know a megawatt hour how do they how do they reconcile that are they are they forcing businesses to make a loss so by coming the, online? the businesses are the, the businesses are, um, are compensated for their electricity. So they're not going to make a loss. Um, okay. And they can make submissions to the market commission um, in order to recover those costs um, and, and be reimbursed. So they're kept whole ultimately. Um, yeah. What's happened is that the trading of the electricity has been frozen as well. So we have a, we have a settlement system that works um, where a generator bits into the market and the and the demand suppliers, like the retailers, they, they purchase that electricity and then they on-sell it. And the operator just makes sure that everything's kind of working properly and there's enough people bidding and there's enough people buying and they're making sure that there's an, the right level of, um, uh, what we call it inertia and the right level of frequency is, is held um, in the marketplace because they have to maintain that as well. And that keeps the whole grid in balance. And that's mm-hmm. when you, you might hear that term a lot about keeping yeah. the grid balanced. And that's about making sure that, you know, demand um, of supply is met with enough demand. Um, and also where we have the right frequency in the grid. And so you have things like solar and wind uh cause you know they they their generation profile so the way in which they provide that electricity into the grid it jumps around a lot yeah you know the the wind the wind speeds pick up and they slow down and they pick up and they slow down and solar cloud coverage can come overhead and the clouds go away and so you get this this what we call intermittent electricity um comes in and out of the grid and that causes the frequency to um, to jump around yeah. and that's where we see the role of batteries and storage start to come in and even out that frequency so they yeah. provide and if there's if there's an oversupply of electricity they provide an immediate load where they demand um uh sorry where they where they can provide electricity or they can provide a demand point where they can take electricity out of the grid and so, store it for later save it for later exactly to then Exactly to then to then put it um, back into the grid when it needs to come, you know, when there's a, a demand for that electricity in the grid. So you know, th- this is this is the role of storage, and that's something that that you know I think we were going to talk about a little bit later on. But certainly, you know, where we're at today is is that the issues that we are facing, we can assign to specific moments that are happening today, but mm-hmm. it's actually, you know, the result of years and years of a lack of action in our energy market. You know, we've had, and it's not just it's not just one government. You know, we can't 
we can't blame it all on a single government over a single time. We've got um, federal and state governments have done their own types of policy over the over the last kind of 15 to 20 years and created different pressures in the system. But certainly the last nine years of having no policy in creating resilience in the marketplace, and when I say in the marketplace, I mean in the generation and storage of electricity as coal-fired stations, they're going to they're gonna go out, um, they're going to be decommissioned. They're going to be um, mm. turned off over time. The, there's no future life for them. Commercially, they don't make enough money. So yep. if it's not, if there's not a sustainable or an environmental reason not to use the coal-fired power stations, there is certainly a commercial reason that is appearing that yeah. a today the coal is expensive b they're really they're, these power stations are really expensive to run mm. um and also they cost a lot to maintain and they're just not they're not as they're not what we need today right we've got a large renewable profile that we can we a resource that we can leverage and we should be doing that let's get to the solution then so I, i'm keen okay. to explore you know, you, you talk about coal fires not the future and it's not about kind of, I mean, it would have been great if government could have set policy and we could have moved there quicker, but what is the solution? How do we look to more reliable and sustainable energy production and supply? Yeah, I think, you know, that's such a such a, an interesting question to, to pose because everyone thinks, oh, solar is going to be the answer, but it's not, and wind's going to be the answer. And they point back to our existing energy system and, you know, we've got such reliable supply. And at the end of the day, the consumer only thinks that why need energy. So they need confidence that they're going to have electricity there when they need it on demand because it's very difficult to store it. So... So one thing to kind of just bear in mind, though, is that the types of generation that we have in our grid is not one. We don't have one single type of generation. We have a lot of coal-fired generation, but we also have a lot of gas. Um, and we also have solar and we also have wind and we have hydro. And we've had hydro for a long time. The snowy, the snowy scheme has been in place um, for a really long time, as has the Wyvernhoe scheme. And there's a lot of hydro on that kind of northeastern I think more north central eastern seaboard of Australia. Um, mm. So it's not like moving away from coal is is like well we don't have anything but coal. We have other things available to us. So is coal the biggest generator currently? Like is it does it make up the most yeah. amount? Yeah. Well, I mean it has done in Victoria yeah. especially. It's over eighty percent of our yeah. of our generation. Um, but you know historically it was the major component of our generation and you know, phasing it out is a big thing because we've got a lot of mines. We've got a lot of um, towns and rural communities attached to those mines. And the lifeblood of some of these rural and regional cities is the the coal the coal mining and also the power station. And yeah. you've got if you go down to Moi in Victoria, you've got generations of people who have lived and worked on the um, on on the power on the mine site or on the power station. You know, and, and you might meet some people there that will say, oh, well, my dad and my granddad, you know, they both worked at um, at Hazelwood and, you know, I've got a job carting coal at, you know, your lawn or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that these people have that, these communities have that very visceral connection to these um, coal-fired power stations and these, and these mines and they need to be taken care of. They need to be supported. They, they need to be on a transition. But 
it's not like we haven't done this transition before. I mean, you know, you and I have spoken to this about Gladstone because you come from Gladstone, but yep. grew up in Gladstone for a bit. And Gladstone's been through multiple changes. You know, it had the coal fire, the coal generation and the coal boom, and then it had the gas boom. And now it's going through a bit of a hydrogen renaissance. And people are like, oh, you know, we can't change in Gladstone. It's like, well, hang on a second. Gladstone's an energy powerhouse that has always changed. Yeah. And it's it's just, this is just the next change. Um but get to, getting to your point about what is the solution, I, I think I've answered in a really long-winded way just to say that there is no single solution. Yeah. You know, our energy, our future energy system is going to be a combination of solar and onshore wind and offshore wind and batteries with fast frequency response and um, pumped hydro for long duration storage plus hydrogen in there for some part of our fuel mix. Because remember, our, when we talk about energy, you and I have spoken a little bit about electricity, yeah. but gas forms a big part of our energy demand and petrol and petroleum products. So whether it's oil or diesel or whatever, also forms a big part of our energy demand because we all drive cars. So, you know, our energy demand and our energy profile and the way in which we consume that is going to change over time. I think people will continue to drive cars. I don't think that's going to change. But how we, how we get our energy, where we get it from, the type of energy it is, is going to change and it's going to be this mixture. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to dive into hydrogen because I know that's uh, close yep. to your heart and something you're very um, knowledgeable about. So I'd like to understand first up how, how hydrogen fits into the solution, but then what's preventing hydrogen from really being mass produced and replacing all of these old coal-fired power stations? Yeah, I think so. Hydrogen was touted, you know, 50 years ago as being the future, the fuel of the future or the future fuel that we could use. Um, the problem has always been how do we harness it and how do we make it cheaply? Electrolysis, so the, the process of having electricity split water into hydrogen and oxygen has and is is becoming or has become um, one of the most efficient ways of making hydrogen without any hydrocarbons. And yeah. so previously we make hydrogen, we have made hydrogen from um, either gasification or steam methane reformation, which is when you take natural gas and you use steam um, and you kind of reform the natural gas into being uh, methane and carbon and hydrogen, you capture the hydrogen. And that's that's great, but it's not great for the environment so hydrogen is you know this via electrolysis so using electricity to make it is seen as being a green way of doing it um and you, you would have heard the term green hydrogen used a lot and that's where you use renewable electricity to create hydrogen now the canny users that you have listening to this podcast we were like hang on a second if you connect the grid you just said that the grid's got coal fire electricity in it so it's not really green and that's true um and you know, there's there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of projects being developed at the moment that are looking at hydrogen as a um, behind what we call behind the meter application, which is where you have electricity generation, so a solar farm with a wind farm or a you know standalone wind farm or whatever it is that is directly connected to a hydrogen electrolyzer, and that creates the hydrogen without connecting to the grid at all. And yeah. so that's where you get you know real like proper green hydrogen because there is nothing there's no carbon involved in that system and electrons they don't know if they're green or brown or turquoise <laughs> or blue or 
you know, gold, whatever color you want them to be. They don't know, right? An electron is an electron. Um, it's about how, how we classify it. And, um, you know, you'll see things like certificates of origin um, is thrown around, which is about classifying the hydrogen that you've got as being green or not green. Um, and you, you would have heard, you know, things like carbon capture and storage. But I think to your but it's point. it's the waste, isn't it? Like it's, you know, we, we don't want to kind of make another system that's as wasteful or, or dirty as what coal was, you know. So I think, you know, we'd lo- like hydrogen, if we could make it in a way that was actually sustainable and, and, and you know, environmentally uh, good for our planet, that would be, you know, so so much better for, for everyone in the long term. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, your question about what's preventing hydrogen is really – it's developing at the moment. It's a it's a it's a phase that's developing. It's a, it's in a phase of it's done its research. It's doing development. It's in deployment, and now it's just a cost and um, yeah. and supply chain issue. And that's the same as all new technologies. They all go through it. Yeah. Solar solar went through it. You know, I'm not sure if you if you if you knew anyone who put a solar um, solar panels on their roof back in the early 2000s, but it was kind of twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars to put a small kind of three kilowatt system on your roof. Now you can put a six or seven kilowatt system on your roof for two and a half thousand dollars once you get the rebates from government. So, you know, technology improves, improves supply chain, improves um, costs come down, and it becomes more accessible. And now solar is, you know, the cheapest form of electricity that we can produce. Um, so storing that solar is a different different issue altogether. But you know, at the end of the day, it is it is the cheapest source of electricity that we can produce. Um, notwithstanding people thinking that you know, um, yeah, fusion nuclear will provide free power forever for everybody. But that's that's another. I think that's another <laughs> yes. podcast entirely. I, so. um, I will need to get you back so, on nuclear. <laughs> oh well, yeah. After my my time. My time in uh, in the nuclear power stations, yeah. So, uh, you know what? But what's preventing it is just that that time, that maturity of technology to get to the point where it gets to scale, it gets a supply chain. There's a demand for it. These are all things that the developing markets need to do. I think the difference with hydrogen, as opposed to some some of these other markets, has been there's a huge global push behind it now because it's seen as a viable product that can help decarbonize a whole range of systems so you can use hydrogen in heavy freight and haulage you can use hydrogen in high heat industrial applications you can use it in your gas burner and your you know your your cooktop and your hot water service and that sort of thing It, it can be interchanged now the appliance needs to change as well but that's the same as if you want to fully electrify your house you can't use your gas cooker if you've got full electricity you've got to get an induction cooktop or an electric cooktop to go in so you know there are there's there's kind of there's pros and cons for all of this sort of stuff at the end of the day um hydrogen like i believe has a role to play in our future energy mix i think it is still trying to determine what that role is yeah um but it will play a role because it's it's a versatile energy vector that can be used across a whole range of applications. So for chemical production, you know whether you want to create ammonia and ammonium nitrate for fertilizer and explosives, or if you want to use it as a hydrogen gas in trucks in order to do long heavy haulage trucking, or even as a sustainable aviation fuel yeah. in the future. And that's you know it, it's it's kind of it's one of those 
kind of things that can cut across markets. Um, and there are places and, you know, there's, there's places for full electrification, obviously. Um, and, you know, we had Alan Finkel in at Arapa a little while ago talking to us about, you know, what's, what, what, do net, what do you need to do to hit net zero? And he was talking about electrify everything that you possibly can. And those things that are too hard or too difficult or too expensive, look to hydrogen as an opportunity to gas. Yeah. All right, Patrick, we have a couple of minutes left, but I'd love to uh, touch on what projects Arab are leading globally to unlock more opportunities in hydrogen. I know a lot of what you do is is under wraps, but what can you share with the listeners to give them a taste of what's coming? Yeah, I, I mean, we've we've found at this stage of the development of the industry globally, we are working with developers and let's say project developers to look at really exciting large scale projects um, to to develop hydrogen either as a domestic use as a, or as a um, or as an international export. And that's in in Australia and New Zealand. Um, you'll be aware of some of the stuff we've done, but Southern Green Hydrogen is one of the projects that we're doing in New Zealand where we're supporting um, Meridian and Contact in their very public. Um, project which is to look for a use for, for 600 megawatts of electricity um, to convert into hydrogen and then you know what can that be and you know where can they use it um, in Australia we're doing a lot of policy and strategy advice and also project development but we're advising the federal government and a whole range of state governments on different uses of hydrogen so hydrogen infrastructure assessments is one thing that we're running for the federal government here in america in the americas we're advising the chilean government on how they can look at um, hydrogen as a real opportunity for them to decarbonize or future-proof their standalone power systems and their micro microgrids that they have um, we're doing a lot of work in America around gas blending and using hydrogen in the gas network. And so we've looked at stuff in the um, both the eastern and the western parts of America. Europe and the UK, we have a huge amount of activity in hydrogen. So whether that's um, decarbonisation of industrial areas, we're working on the, the Humber um, decarbonisation precinct in the UK. We're doing a lot of work in the Netherlands and in Spain, which seems to be real hotspots for um, hydrogen at the moment. The port of Rotterdam is looking to um, import, I think it's 4 million tonnes of hydrogen by 2050. So 4 million tonnes a year by 2050. And that's just wow. a, I mean, you know, that's, um, so, so to put that in perspective, um, and, and to at today's kind of levels of efficiency, a million tons of hydrogen is around about kind of somewhere between 15 and, and 20 gigawatts, depending on your electricity profile. So 4 million tons is going to be somewhere, you know, up to kind of 80 gigawatts. Australia's entire energy system is around about 60 gigawatts. Wow. So, so just the port of Rotterdam wants to import more hydrogen from a megawatt um, generation perspective than Australia's entire electricity system is today. Um, we're doing some work on liquid hydrogen in Japan and looking at liquid hydrogen supply chains. And we've been working with a lot of the, the Japanese consortium, um, oh, sorry, Japanese uh, general trading houses. And we're doing some work, a lot of work in Singapore around like the role of hydrogen for, um, for Singapore, because obviously Singapore has been a traditional base of fuel bunkering for 
you know, years, like, you know, hundreds of years, well, not hundreds of years, but a hundred years, it's had bunkering and offshore refueling and that sort of thing. So, you know, Singapore obviously has to go through a bit of a change being on a trade route. Um, and yeah, the, I think Africa is the other, the other area where we're doing, you know, a bit of work as well in, in hydrogen. We've seen some really exciting projects in um, Southern Africa and in Namibia. And it's just, you know, there's just a lot going on. Um, the only thing I will say, like it just, just kind of reflecting on one of your questions earlier about what's holding hydrogen back is I think that today we are holding hydrogen as a green fuel to a much higher standard than our existing fuel uses. Mm. And I think that that's something that we need to rectify and say, right, the, the goal is to decarbonize. It's not about how much does this cost because we can calculate everything in it. It's about looking at our current energy system and saying that cost is immense. Mm. You know, can we continue to do that? And the answer is no, we can't. So. Yeah, absolutely. And it's about iteratively getting better, right? We don't need to kind of nail perfection from the beginning. We just need to continually move forward so that we can actually get to something that is, you know, much more sustainable and reliable and environmentally um, conscious into the future, I think. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, if you think about it, um, just going back to that point that I made before about taking care of these communities that are yeah. currently around these these coal-fired power stations, given the size of the opportunity here, mm. we have, you know, there are millions of jobs available for these projects to develop. They need workers, they need fitters and turners, they need manufacturing, um, they need all this work, right? So there are options in the future. I think it's just about how we communicate them, how we locate them in the right spots and, you know, how we effectively transition people. So totally you know. agree. Nicely concluded. Thank you. <laughs> it's been Fantastic having you on the podcast, Patrick. We could literally keep talking for another couple of hours, I think, and we would still have more yeah. to talk about. But that was just really fantastic. And and I think the listeners will really gain something totally different out of that episode to what we have covered in the past. But um, I'll need to listen to that a couple of times to, to actually sink it all in because you say things as though it's so obvious. But for many of us who are not in that, you know, deeply in the industry like you are, it is certainly not obvious. So thank you for your time today. Thank you, Nicole. I really appreciate it. Lots of fun. That's awesome. And thank you for tuning into the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Instagram and LinkedIn too. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>